Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh talks about how we should be living our lives after coming to know Christ as Savior. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, A Gospel-Worthy Life. Beginning in verse 1, I'll let you turn your attention there. Let's read God's word together and then we're going to pray. Ask for God's grace one more time that we'll have hearts that are ready to hear his word. So Ephesians 4 verse 1, please read with me. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Please bow with me. Let's ask for God's help. Well, Lord, our God, we come to you. You are the sovereign ruler over all. All things have been created from you. They exist through you. And God, it is all for you. Every molecule in existence has its existence for the purpose of showing and displaying your glory and one way or another, all things are going to. God, we've been made for your glory. That truth invigorates us, stirs us, and I ask God once again, it will re-stir us to joy, to a sense of purpose, to a new ambition and zeal of life. And God, I, I pray that Lord, by the time we leave here today, God, we will walk out these doors and live lives of worship unto you in a way we never have before. God, every time we come to your word, there's the potential for a miracle that just sets our lives on fire and then has a ripple effect in the world around us. God, that's what we want. God, I wanna ask that nothing short of an absolute renewal and refreshing a new miracle of restirring inside of us happens today, Lord, that the result of our lives when we leave here, Lord, would be that of affecting the world around us, of souls coming to Christ because of what you do in us. So Father, we ask, bless us. Bless us, God, to turn our attention to you. Bless our minds to have the ability to think and go deep. Bless our hearts, O oh God, to receive and heed your word, to be stirred to worship. Father, bless us, O oh Lord, I, I pray that you will bring transformation today. Accomplish your purposes. Help me to preach, teach, be faithful and useful, not hurtful in any way, O oh God. Uh, show us your glory. Set us loose, God. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. Uh, mom and dad were leaving on a Saturday to go for a, a date day. They called their kids together, and let's just say there was a large number of kids, big family. They call the kids together, and they give them some instructions before they're going to walk out the door. And they tell them, we got a list of chores for you guys today. we got a list of things we want you to get done. Now, I shouldn't even have to say this. You, you know the rules. Don't be fighting with each other. Don't be arguing. Don't you be doing things you know are wrong. But in addition to that, we, we've got some things we want you to accomplish. Now, by all means, throughout the day, rest when you want to rest, eat when you're hungry, have some fun today. But by the time we get home tonight, not sure when we'll be home, but by the time we get home, we want these things to be accomplished. So mom and dad walk out the door. What happens when mom and dad leave? If you have young children, there are horror stories maybe coming into your mind about the kinds of things that can happen. But imagine for a second here the full spectrum of what happens with the children. Imagine that there are a couple of the children who went off and did some absolutely horrible things. Just even left the house and went off to do wicked things when the parents gave them this freedom. But then imagine there were a few of the kids who were faithful and obedient. They did what mom and dad had instructed them to do. One of them even went above and beyond because they know mom and dad make it worth it whenever we give excellence in these things. But what about that middle group? What about that group that's, you know, neither hot nor cold? 
well, mom and dad leave and that middle group kind of goes and maybe plops down on the couch, begins to watch TV, occasionally meanders in and picks up a few things from their room and then goes off and does their own thing, maybe, maybe goes and does their own hobby. And let's imagine that one of the children who's, you know, wanting to honor mom and dad comes and says something to him. It's like, hey, you know, won't you get up and come help us a little bit here? You, you know, mom and dad told us to, what to do. And what if that middle group says, oh, don't worry about me. I'm not off doing those horrible things that, you know, the other brother and sister are doing. Well, yeah, you know, mom's called you to do more than that. Hey, I, I picked up my room a little bit. That's great. We were told more than that. And then let's say that the, one of the middle group responds, would you just quit with your legalistic, judgmental, all the time berating me? Besides, we know mom and dad are all about grace. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. You know, the children who were doing the things that were obviously wicked, it's real clear where they stand. The children who were being clearly faithful and obedient to your parents, it's also really clear where they stand. But it's this middle group. It's this halfway stuff that creates a great deal of difficulty. And, and friends, just quite frankly, I, I'm not trying to be critical, but I am trying to be accurate as we look at Christianity where we live. This is not true of Christianity globally. Because I'm going to tell you right now, there's not a great deal of mediocrity in China right now. But in this place, this middle land is a lot of times where Christians come to live. And using the exact same reasonings, the exact same justifications, they, they assure themselves that everything's fine because I'm not killing people and I've done some of what God told me to do. But the great question is, is this, friends, for, for our lives, what are God's expectations? Like how hard does he expect us to go? How much does he expect us to do? How much effort does he expect us to give? This morning is a sequel to last Sunday's truths that we started to look at from Ephesians chapter 1. Last week from Ephesians 1, we got into the meaning and purpose of all things. Why uh, do we breathe? Why have we been given life? And what we saw from that passage and from dozens and dozens of others... You and I and grass and oceans and angels and planets have all been created for the purpose that God is displaying his glory through the face of his son. All things have been created. All things have been ordered so that the name of Jesus is going to be exalted and the message of the gospel that main message of the scriptures of what God has done in Christ, saving a people to himself, that message is what defines all of reality and everything that God is doing in some way is connected and flows out of the gospel. God has created all things so that in some way it will all display his splendor. Even the wicked even the fallen angels who reject him, they are in one way at the end going to show the glory of God. As they bow in defeat, even those in rebellion are still going to honor the name of Jesus Christ. But you listen to me. There is unimaginable joy for those who serve God's glory happily. The meaning of all things, the why behind all things is the glory of God displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. And we considered these truths and, and this statement, which sort of sums up so much of the gospel. If you are in Christ, and it is if and only if, you have come to Christ knowing your need of salvation and you have turned to him in faith, if that is you, God has saved you out of unimaginable misery and is bringing you into unimaginable joy. And so in light of that, in light of that truth, if this is the case, if this is the story of your eternity, then we ended with this application. In light of the meaning of the cosmos, in light of all of the mercy that God has shown, how do we respond? What does God want? What's the response 
that is fitting for what God has accomplished? Well, the, the answer is he wants a lot and he's worthy of it. God wants gratitude, but he wants more than a moment of gratitude. God wants worship, but he wants us to have more than just, an, a, just a, a quick moment of worship. God wants us to love him, but not just fleeting, passing affections. God wants eternal gratitude, eternal worship, eternal love that begins even now by devoting our lives to him and declaring, I am going to use the rest of the existence that I have right now to battle sin, honor him, make his name known. God calls us to respond to the magnitude of the grace we've been shown by laying our lives down in obedience. God calls us to a new way of life. Jesus calls us to a new way of living in response to what he's done for us. But somewhere along the lines, this movement got started amongst Christians with this idea that obedience isn't that big of a deal. Let's be honest, it's not new. It's been around since the first century. Whenever you read the letters uh, that are written to the church in Corinth, we see that that idea was present even there. This is not a new thing. Down through the centuries, it's drifted into different groups. It's taken on different names and it's present today. You hear their slogans, the quick passing, hey, don't beat yourself up. Nobody's perfect. God don't care about that. Oh, God's all about grace. Which when you say something like that, there are some truths that are a part of that. But the big problem is what's being communicated. The big problem is communicating this idea that God's bar for you is way down here. But the question is, is, is that reality? So this morning I want to consider this truth. Let's look at what it means to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. To live in a manner that is worthy of of the grace we have been shown, of the calling to which we have been called. In verse one of chapter four here, you see the way that it's worded here. This same truth is repeated numerous times throughout the New Testament. And so I wanna walk through this and wanna do it like this. I wanna talk a bit more about just obedience in general. We're gonna look at some different places in scripture where we see this, this um, high weight, the, this great weight that God has put on obedience and the expectations God has for us. And then kind of at the end by way of application, and I'll kind of track, see how much time we got left and stuff, six categories, six areas that God calls us to look at in our lives in living response to the gospel. So if you are taking notes, let's talk a bit more about this obedience in general. God expects obedience and service and great effort. This pattern that we see here in Ephesians is a pattern that you'll find numerous times in the New Testament. Uh, the pattern goes like this in several of the books of the New Testament. The gospel is explained uh, here in the book of Ephesians, there are three chapters of deep truths about what God has done for us in Christ, the glory of what we have in Christ, the glory of the riches that we have in Christ. And then there will come a statement in the book where there's a therefore. Chapter four, verse one, you see the therefore, the rest of the book is, now here's how we live in response to those things. That's exactly what I told you is gonna come in the book of Romans as we're studying through it. 11 chapters of the gospel, the glory of Christ, the glory of what we have in Christ. And then chapter 12, verse one has this, therefore, therefore let's live lives of worship by laying our lives down. So this pattern is a regular thing that we see here. It begins with us being moved to wonder and marvel over the riches of what we have in Christ. And then when our hearts are moved and we say to God, God, I want to honor you. This is then the response. You want to show God worship? Make your life worship. You want to show God love? Jesus says, if you love me, then obey me. This pattern is a regular thing. And I want you to see the beauty of this as well, friends. 
aren't you glad that God did not make the gospel to work so that you have to do so many good deeds or pay a certain amount of money and then you get salvation? We would never achieve it. God freely accepts us, embraces us, forgives us, sets his love on us in a moment and then being inspired by that, God stirs us on to then live lives that obey him. But when you walk through the book of Ephesians here, what you have starting at chapter four then are all of these various categories that are brought up. Here's how you obey. Here's how you live personal obedience personal worship, loving one another. Family faithfulness is brought up. Us being built up and matured in Christ. Us serving the body of Christ. Us bringing the gospel to the lost. All of these are brought up as in response, here's how we worship God. So we're gonna get to those categories, but first a bit more about obedience. Consistently throughout the scriptures, we're shown that obedience is a big deal. And the reason why we have to say that is because there's this idea that it's not. Your, your enemy who hates your soul. If you are in Christ, he tried to keep you from becoming a Christian. Now, of, of course, I'm, I'm speaking to you who you are confident that you have come to Christ like God calls you to. You've heard the message of Jesus. You understand your need to be saved. You understand that you are not right with God until you have forgiveness of sins, until you're united with Christ and you have turned away from rebellion, away from your own ruling of your life, away from sin. You have come to Christ. If that is you, your enemy tried to keep you from doing that. He worked Tried to give you all kinds of reasons, all kinds of justifications of why you didn't really need that. He tried to keep you. The irresistible grace of God wooed you to himself and you embrace Christ. This enemy who tried to keep you from being, coming to faith in Christ. Now that he can't stop that, he at least wants to make you an ineffective Christian. He at least wants to make you a non-disciple-making Christian. He at least wants to keep you in the shallow waters of superficial Christianity. He's got all kinds of ways he tries to do this. All kinds of distractions and other aims of life. One of the tactics that he has used is to delude the minds of some with this idea that now that you're saved, now that you're forgiven, God doesn't expect much of you. You know, don't get inconvenienced yourself. Sure, clean your room. Sure, make sure you don't kill people. But other than that, just no need to go too hard. And friends, it's this kind of thinking that produces that mediocre, shallow, superficial, cheesy kind of Christianity. And again, I'm not trying to be critical, but I am trying to be accurate. It is the reality here in this land where we live, the majority of churches here are preaching a cheap grace that gives a low expectation of what God calls us to. And again, I'm saying that's not universal. I'm telling you right now in China, got some believers being hardcore over there. Get on the news and look and see what's happening as the government is now plowing, bulldozing over their buildings and their meeting in the streets, preaching the gospel, having worship services out in the open. Not a lot of superficial Christianity going on right there in the midst of persecution. But in this land of ease, there is a great deal of the shallow, cheap grace, giving the idea that God expects little of us. But when we see the scriptures, there's a very different message that is shown. The pattern we are shown is Christians obey. It's the mark of what a true Christian is. Walk with me through some texts. Let's spend a little bit of time and look at some of these places where you see this. Jump to the book of Matthew, if you will, with me. Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Find verse 27. Let me read here to you. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. 
For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You know, these verses right here bring a lot of confusion sometimes because sometimes here, here's, the, here's the, the objection that Christians kind of bring. Well, pastor, if we're saved by faith, then what are we supposed to do with these verses? Because these verses are telling me I got to rip out an eyeball or I'm going to hell. How do these come together? The answer is, friends, these are in perfect, compatible relationship with each other. We are saved by faith. But here is more the language that scripture will use and we'll hear Jesus using. We are saved by turning to Christ in faith. Think about language that Jesus used when he said things like, come to me. Come to me and be saved. That call to come means to leave things. More biblical language, we're told that we are to repent and believe. That word repent means not just to feel sorry. It's not just to have a little bit of sorrow over our sins. To repent means to leave sin. It means to turn my back to it. It means to change my mind about God and about my sin. It means to put my back to sin, my face to God, and my knees to Christ. Repentance involves a submission to Christ. There has to be a heart turning to him in faith if we truly believe that he is Lord. This is not the turning to a perfection, but it is the turning from rebellion and to a heart of submission. And one of the things we're shown is we're just not doing that if there is persistent rebellion to God. Jump to 1 Corinthians for a moment. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six, find verse nine. Start there with me. First Corinthians six, nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now pause there for just a second. Why do you think he says, do not be deceived? And why do you think a dozen or so passages of the New Testament also says this exact same thing? The reason why we need to be told this is because this is a real temptation. And it is a real thing that there are a great many who convince themselves that they are Christians when they have never truly turned to him in the way that Jesus calls. They've maybe prayed a prayer. And friends, it might be the case that it's your heart. Like, I don't want to give you undue stress for no reason, but as the Puritans used to say, I'd rather give a little bit of distress to the people of God than to pat the backs of those on their way to hell. I'd rather cause your heart a little bit of distress, even if you truly are in Christ, of a little examination. And to hear some of the bold warnings that Scripture gives you, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then look and see what he says here as he follows this up. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, let me, let me try to bring a little bit of clarity to some of this. Number one, do you see that a list is not given here of if every once in a while you have an impatient moment, you ain't going to the kingdom of God. That's not what we're told here. We're told persistent patterns of sin. Do you see this? Persistent choices or the persistent living in patterns of sin that are there. And we are told this, this does not define the kingdom of God. It is not that you get good and then you get heaven. It is instead 
the miracle of the new birth and of forgiveness that God brings, brings about a change in our lives, which eventually leads onto obedience and the putting to death of persistent sin. You might think of it of the difference between a child who is striving to obey their parents, but messes up, falls and stumbles versus the rebellious heart of a child who's not even trying. And we have to see this difference here. But friends, do not be deceived. It doesn't matter how convinced a person is they are a Christian. If they are living persistent patterns of of this unrighteousness, what he says is you are not among those who are in the kingdom of God. And you will find almost verbatim this exact language throughout the New Testament. Like in Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5, this same kind of thing. But do you also see the great hope that is in here in verse 11? Such were some of you, he writes to. It does not matter how wicked, how gross, how vile the sin you have been involved in. Right now, you can be fully and completely accepted by God, washed and cleansed of your sin and given a home in heaven right now. Now, even if this morning you were engaging in some of those things, God's grace is available to you, but it is to be past tense. When we turn to Christ, it is to become the kind of thing of that's who I used to be. Now I am a new creation in him. From 1 Corinthians, jump to the book of Ephesians. Three books later, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read it quickly because I'm trying to make through here. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, this is speaking to Christians. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. Do you notice the emphasis on the word formerly? This is who we used to be. We are now been made new in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, you can just jot that one down. We were told that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There's a real important one in 1 John. So if you'll flip there with me. 1 John chapter 2. I love the simplicity with the way he says it here in 1 John. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, find verse 3. And look what he says here. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him just given it real clear. And the reason why the New Testament has so much of this is because this is a real temptation. This is a real thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that on the day of judgment, there will be many who thought they were right with God, who convinced themselves that they were fine, they were saved, they were a Christian, they went through their churches, whatever steps, this, then this, then this, then this but yet their heart had never truly turned to him. And he will say, I never knew you. Still from 1 John, jump to chapter three, find verse four. Look and see what it says here. 1 John 3, four, everyone who practices sin and and emphasize that word practices there. That's gonna become important here in just a second. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. Now that's not talking about the stumbling and falling that we will all do. Even this very book brings that up and says, if anybody pretends they're there, you're a liar. We will all stumble. But again, this is the practice, the persistent pattern. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Verse seven, little children, make sure no one deceives you 
The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil for the devil is sin from the beginning. The son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin, again, meaning this persistent practice because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Just saying it so clearly. Now, at this point, I I do want to bring up another truth. So many times in the Bible, there are two truths that need to be shown side by side. We see this all the time. And I do want to say this as well. Some, you know, every, every Christian, our great need is one truth or another truth. We're all in different places and have certain temptations in our thoughts. It may be that some of you have kind of come out of legalism. It may be that some of you have the kind of personality that guilt really gets to you. Some of you maybe have the kind of personality where when you sin, you feel so awful. You feel like God hates you and you, you can't be saved anymore. And for you, that personality There's more truth, sweet, sweet, beautiful truth that you maybe need more than this one. And I might actually be causing you some great distress right now. But you need to hear the truths that the God who saved you is a God who has love and mercy overflowing out of his heart. As much as we delight in little babies and we feel such sweet affection for them, the God who saved you feels more affection for you than you have ever felt for any children you have. There is grace. When we stumble, he doesn't hate you. His countenance towards you, his facial expression towards you is not a scowl. You who are in Christ, he loves you. There is grace. There is forgiveness. He is proud of the progress you make. When you are striving, he is pleased. He rejoices in your work. So when we stumble and when we fall, never think that God is disgusted with you. That's not his demeanor. Some of us need that, maybe more than this. But as we look at the landscape of where Christianity is here in this land, sometimes that is the only thing said. And the expectations of obedience are what are neglected. When we only focus on grace and do not talk about God's expectations for obedience, we come to a wrong place. Along the same lines, let me also say this. If all we ever talked about was law and no grace, we would end up self-righteous legalists. And God doesn't want that either. God wants us to have both of these truths beautifully held in our minds. But bringing these passages together, we can come to some conclusions. The calling to come to Christ is the calling to a new way of life. New behavior, new thinking, new way of speaking, new attitudes, new ambitions, new goals, new way we use our time, new direction of our lives we're aiming for, and it results in a new lifestyle. And there is another dimension to this. There is not only the call in obedience to to put to death the, the unrighteous parts of our old life, those deeds and those patterns. There's not only the call to put those to death, but there is also the call of, there's a new list of instructions that we've been called to now come into. Kind of like our opening illustration. Not only are there things to avoid, but there are also deeds and a way of living that God calls us to enter into. Jesus calls us to abandon the way of a wasted life. We in Christ, we put off the old deeds of the flesh and we are to put on the new man in Christ. And when we look at this, yes, it can feel a bit overwhelming. If you're new to studying the Bible and 
Some of these kinds of things we're saying here are new. Yes, we can sit there and be like, I am never going to be able to do this. And there can be something that feels overwhelming, but let me just kind of press and reason with you a little bit. Don't not believe it just because it's hard. Do you remember some of those passages where Jesus said some of the hardest things that he said when he said things like, no one can be my disciple if you love your wife, your, 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 your husband, your children more than me? Nobody can be my disciple if you do not renounce your possessions, if you will not take up your cross, follow me. What do we see the crowds do? Do you remember? On multiple occasions, a great part of the crowd walked away. Jesus didn't say, oh, okay, okay, I changed my mind. Let me lower the expectations here. No, this is what it means to be a disciple. What it means to be a disciple, a follower of Christ, is one who will sweat, bleed, puke, and die for the sake of Christ. We will bleed in the pursuit of obedience. But in grace, let me also help with this. As we look at this life and what God calls us to, also remember Jesus doesn't call us to have it all in order tomorrow. This is a process. Every day, he will give the grace to make progress today. But we also need to see that he expects us to be walking towards this today. We cannot, we cannot live in such a way that believes God expects little of us. Do you remember that passage in Revelation 3 where Jesus speaks to the church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church? Do you remember what he said to them? They were neither hot with zeal and, and desires for obedience, but they also weren't just flat apostate. And he speaks to them and he says, I wish you were one or the other. I, I, I wish you would choose either to be hot with passion or just to just quit. Because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is so important that we get this to understand what God expects of us. There is grace but there is a call to strive. The call to follow Christ is the call to enter the hardest thing you will ever do. And if we are in the midst of a Christian life and it's not feeling hard, we're doing it wrong. The battle to put sin to death and to die to my wicked lust and desires and the thoughts and jealousies and fleshly, all the nasty that's going on inside of there, the fight to put that stuff to down is the hardest battle we will fight to glorify God in all circumstances. We must strive. So what's the call here? Well, if I could only give one application, it would be this. Read the Bible and do what it says. But that's a bit broad. That really is one call though, and I mean that. Engage, live a life of immersion in the scriptures, approaching it with the attitude, I am going to make progress to strive to obey these things. However, when things are left broad like that, it becomes difficult in them. So thankfully, what scripture does is brings up specifics. Oftentimes in passages, it brings up really specific things, like down to the, the one of thousands of little areas, like when the scripture confronts our irritability or impatience in our heart. But the Bible also comes and confronts us with categories. So kind of at the end here, let me suggest to you six categories Six categories of examination, six categories of emphasis that we are called to. And it goes like this. Let us respond to the gospel. Let us respond to worship. If we love him, here are six areas for us to give attention to. Number one, personal obedience and holiness. If you're back in Ephesians 4, if you were to keep reading down through this, and really if you just read through the end of this letter here, you'll see all kinds of specific instructions that are there, and here is a category of them. Some of the, some of the verses call us to holiness of character. Some of the verses call us to commandments that we are to obey. Now, do you want you to see there's a little bit of difference there? Like if you looked at verses 28 and 29 of chapter four, look what it says there. He who steals must steal no longer. All right, there is a wicked action, put it off. 
If you notice, the rest of the verse also talks about another part of the gospel, and that is not only rid our lives of the evil, but then what is the one who steals to do? Start working so that you can start sharing with other people. What is this? Commands to obey, but you also see throughout this a call to humility, a call to have hearts and attitudes that think like God thinks. That is holiness of character. So we have both the deeds and the character, and we are to strive to honor him with our lives. I know that even as we say these things, this is still pretty broad. I'm hoping for a couple things, and here's one of the things I prayed before the service this morning through this week. I prayed that as we talked about some of these, the Holy Spirit would bring to your mind, to jump to your mind, some of the ones that you and I specifically need to be addressing. I don't know your heart. God does. What are the areas in your life that are still part of the old you that you've not yet put to death? What do you need to rid from your life? What are commands that God has given us to do, but you've not yet begun to walk into these things that now that I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to begin doing these kinds of things? Where are you still needing to give God obedience? Second category, loving one another, a heart of love. And even though we may kind of technically think of that as part of obedience and holiness, it's such a big subject, such a critical part of what it means to be a Christian. It's given its own category throughout scripture and in Ephesians here. Now, um, it is the intention, Lord willing, next Sunday, we're going to look at this one, in spe- this one specifically. So I'm going to press pause on that one right now. Next week, Lord willing, just entirely look at that one. So let's come to number three. Personal growth, maturity, and equipping for the work of service. Personal growth, maturity, and equipping. In chapter four still, if you look down to verses 11 to 16, this is a passage that we have gone to numerous times. It's so rich, so deep, so much going on there. You see a description of where God wants to bring you. Like this is God's goal. What does God want to bring about in you? You read 11 to 16, you'll see that goal. And one of the summations is that you will be brought to maturity in Christ. And we're shown that it comes... God's method, this is a big truth, God's method is us together. The ministry that goes on. What's happening right now, the preaching and teaching is just one of many of the parts of what it means for the body of Christ to work together, to care for one another, to be built up in Christ. I would would say that a great, great part of that is the conversations that Christians have. We're doing instructing. We're doing teaching with one another in conversations. But there is also this. There is the call for each Christian to take responsibility for himself, herself, to grow, mature, get equipped, get trained, so as to develop into the useful servant of God that he wants us to be. God calls every Christian to serve, to labor. You have gifts where you are skilled in it. They are gifts from God. God has wired you up to where when you do it, you will be useful. Sharpen that ax. Grow and develop in those skills. Come to the knowledge of Christ. God wants you to know his word so deeply that if someone comes to you with false teaching, you are instantly able to detect it with the radar of your mind that truth is flowing in your brain. God wants you to grow so that you are able to adequately share the gospel with those people in your life. God wants you to grow in Christ so that when a new believer comes in the church, we might be able to just come to any one of you And to say, hey, we got a new Christian. Somebody needs to pair up with them. Would you be willing to have lunch or coffee with them once a week for about three months? Teach them what it means to be a Christian. Could you do that? Could you do a good job at it? God wants you to grow in Christ, grow in the knowledge and obedience to maturity in such a way you are able to help others grow in Christ. God wants you to be made into a mature disciple and he wants you to help others be made into mature disciples. Number four, serving the body of Christ, very much connected with what we have just been saying. But let me, let me suggest this right here. 
are you using these gifts? Not just the gifts of knowledge. Some people are better at that than others. Some people have those behind the scenes kinds of gifts. Let me me just ask you this very personal application question for yourself to answer. Are you serving as you ought to be? You've probably heard the 90-10 rule. Generally speaking, 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people. Unfortunately, that is often the case in the church. And it's an unfortunate thing that sometimes there are workers who get burnt out because they feel the burden. They got to do all this stuff while others aren't really given the effort they should. And so let me just suggest this to you. You don't want to stand before Christ and answer for the fact that there were Christians in your church who got burnt out, panic attacks, stressed and sleepless nights if you weren't giving the work that you know God wants you to. Are you engaging? Are you serving? This is another way we respond. Do you love God? Are you grateful for the gospel? Then show him by caring for his kids, loving his people. Number five, very quickly, family faithfulness. Another major section of the gospel-worthy life that we're shown is in regard to the family. As you're in Ephesians and you come to chapter five there, there is, uh, starting there in verse 22, that deepest of sections in the whole Bible on marriage, what it is, the way God designed it, how we live it in beauty and sweet intimacy. And there's this whole thing that's shown here. And so I want you to watch this. In that section with the family, husbands and wives, children, the household, not only are there commands given where it's said like this, if you love God, then honor him by fulfilling your role. Husbands, love your wives, awesome. Wives, uh, fulfill your responsibilities. Children, honor and obey your parents. There's not only those commands and obey out of gratitude, but we're also shown this. We're also shown that the gospel is the picture we have been given, that our marriage is to look like the gospel. The husband is to love in a self-sacrificing way, just like Jesus has loved the church. The wife is to respond to her husband like Christ is to respond to the church. The parents are to be uh, investing in their children in a way that shows these things. Christian marriage should be the most beautiful picture of the gospel on the planet. We should out-love, out-rejoice, out-romance, outdo the world in the sweetness and intimacy of marriage. And when we do, we show something of the beauty of the gospel. We show, we show the greatness of what God has made. As you come to chapter six, parents and children are addressed. Another dimension of living unto God is what happens in this relationship. Parents are commanded to bring up their children in the nurture, the discipline the instruction of the Lord with the gospel at the center. Children, if you love God and want to honor and obey him, then honor and respect your parents. This is an outlet of the way that you do these things. One one last thing on this note that I do want to say is, is this. You know, Christianity is in decline in this land, this nation, not universally and not globally, but in this place, Christianity is in decline But I want you to consider this. If Christians had only focused on making disciples of their children, if they had never even thought about making disciples with their neighbors and their coworkers and had only done this work amongst their children, we would not be in decline. We would be multiplying. There is a failure on the part there that has led to gospel stagnation. Let that not be said here. May this be a place where we are so fervent with the gospel. We're sharing the gospel daily, not only with our kids, but in the world around us so that the name of Christ is honored to the ends of the earth. Gospel faithfulness, family faithfulness is a way we live the gospel worthy life. And then lastly, very much connected what I just said, gospel telling. Over and over scripture shows this principle. When you love and rejoice in the Lord, you cannot shut up about him. 
when you are moved and drawn to a zeal that is just burning inside of you, we want everybody else to see his awesomeness as well. We want all the nations to bow to his name. And telling of the gospel, the drawing of other souls to Christ, it not only flows out of worship, it is worship itself. And friends, this is what God is doing in history. This is what defines all things. The glorious God is displaying his glory by saving a people to himself through faith in his son. All things are working so that the name of Jesus is exalted. Friends, we are called to make our purpose match the purpose of God. All things will give him glory. Let's use our lives to give him glory. The gospel will be the way, the message of salvation in Christ will be the way that his glory is shown greater than any other. Let us make that the center of our lives. Let's be a gospel-centered people. Let's saturate this place where we live with the gospel. Let's make it our ambition that by the time we die, every household here has been confronted with the gospel. Let's make it our aim to imitate what we've seen in other places in history, a movement of the gospel. And we will do it for his glory. People of God, let us live in a manner that is worthy of the riches we have in Christ. And if you're with us this morning and you're not sure whether you are in Christ, when we talk about all this, you're not sure if there's ever been a time that you've really come to him like this. What God tells us is that that can happen even right now. The call of God is not to leave here, go be good, and then maybe one day you'll be a Christian. The invitation of God is right now you can receive Christ and be made a new creation right now. Turn your heart to trust him. Believe on him. Place your faith in him. Turn your heart to him like this and then pray to him. Tell him you believe and ask God to save you. Scripture says that all who call on him like this will be saved. We implore you before you try to do anything else religious, this is what you need. You need Christ. Come to him and you will be saved. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that though we are unworthy, undeserving, and defiled sinners, you have given us new life in Christ, that we have this hope. Thank you for what you have done. We worship you now. We will worship you forever. I ask God that we, your sons and daughters in this room, we will live in a way that pleases you, that you will smile on our lives, O oh God. And I also pray, God, for any here that have not yet responded, that have not yet turned to Christ to be saved, God, I, I pray that they will be drawn to you, that you will right now open their eyes in a way that they never understood before. The scales will fall off and they will see the truth. They'll feel their need and run to you. Please, God, be at work and use us uh, as your people. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, A Gospel-Worthy Life. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.